This is Africa Digest. It's 1700 hours Central African time. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Spumele Lezondi and I'm with Amanda Machaka, with Sani Matebula and Fegile Lengwati. Your top stories on Africa Digest. The decision to extend the term of South Sudan's parliament by three years received with caution. Security fears still persist ahead of Nigeria's elections on Saturday. In economics, the South African Reserve Bank leaves a repo rate unchanged at 5.75%. And in sports, Bafana Bafana brace themselves for a clash against Nigeria. Let's get the news from Amanda. The fact that this Good evening. Ugandan police say they have increased security in the capital after the United States warned of terrorist threats to its citizens. The U.S. Embassy warned yesterday that terrorists could target places where U.S. and Western citizens congregate in Kampala. Some events at hotels were cancelled. Uganda is a key participant in an African Union contingent that is helping the Somali government fight the group in the Horn of Africa country. Twin bombings by Al-Shabaab killed 76 people watching the Football World Cup in Kampala in 2010. Lesotho's opposition party member Futu Hotlu has been appointed as deputy president of the Senate. This has raised a speculation that Prime Minister Pakadita Musisiri does not enjoy majority support in the upper house. Hotlu from the Obasutu convention will be the deputy to King Litsia III's brother, Prince Siso Siso, who was appointed president. Hotlu's appointment has also raised speculation that the Senate might frustrate Musisiri's government. However, Musisiri enjoys a majority of 65 of the 120 members of the National Assembly. Sikwane Pishwane is from NGO Transformation Resource Center. The fact that this house is limited to review functions, it, the Constitution still gives the National Assembly the right uh, not to take proposal or advice from the Senate. So it, 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 the Constitution actually still gives the the nation has much powers to do as it, 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 it feels that it's, it's okay with it. They have no powers to initiate the, the policy legislations. Uh, because of that, uh, it doesn't look like it's going to be, it's going to be possible for, for them to hinder the government uh, agenda or government uh, legislation or proposals. The World Health Organization says South Sudanese refugees living in Ethiopia are at the risk of communicable diseases. The health agency says there is also a need for new refugee camps to be set up with the increase of refugees from South Sudan. Dr. Fiona Braka from WHO in Ethiopia explains that as refugees continue to flee to the country due to the ongoing conflict in South Sudan, the risk increases. The risk for other communicable diseases is also very high. Uh, particularly meningitis, malaria, leishmaniasis, guinea worm. We saw an outbreak of hepatitis E in the region last year, dysentery uh, and typhoid fever. All these are endemic uh, with high prevalence in the neighboring uh, South Sudan. 
and with the influx of refugees into Gambela, uh, it predisposes the population there to uh, these outbreaks. The human rights group Amnesty International has found that both Palestinians and Israelis committed war crimes during last year's Gaza conflict. This echoes an earlier finding by UN Special Investigator Richard Goldstone. Amnesty has found that Palestinian militants committed war crimes during the 2014 Gaza conflict by killing both Israeli and Palestinian civilians using indiscriminate projectiles. Amnesty also accuses Israel of war crimes for its attacks on civilians buildings and Palestinian homes during the war. According to the UN, the 50-day Gaza war left more than 2,000 Palestinians dead, while 66 Israeli soldiers and six civilians were killed. And finally, nuclear negotiations between the United States and Iran are entering a critical phase with U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry meeting his Iranian counterpart. This meeting comes just days before an end-of-month deadline for the outline of a deal. U.S. officials say the March 31 deadline is achievable but remains uncertain amid significant gaps. Channel Africa News. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Thank you very much, Amanda. It's 17.05 Central African time. A cross-section of South Sudan citizens has reacted cautiously on the decision by the country's National Assembly to extend the life of Parliament, President and Governors by three years. Some Sudanese have praised the National Assembly for the extension, while others describe it as unconstitutional. James Shimanyula prepared the following report. The dramatic decision by South Sudan's National Assembly to extend the life of President, Parliament and Governors by three years has been received with mixed reaction by a cross-section of citizens of Africa's newest nation. Lama Kol, leader of one of South Sudan's opposition parties, Sudan People's Liberation Movement for Democratic Change, SPLMDC, explains what the extension of the tenuous means. It proves the concern of the people all along that this government has never uh, cared about the people. It looted the coffers of the country and after they did that they plunged the country into a devastating civil war and now they want that war to continue. Supporting the National Assembly's decision to extend the tenure is Professor Simon Monoja, an expert on South Sudan politics at the University of Juba's College of Social and Economic Studies. In the due course of no proper peace arrangement, particularly the structure or what they call power sharing and whatever, obviously government cannot live the country in a vacuum with that administration. There has to be a way of how the administration can come, can go on until time comes for a proper peace 
The peace agreement that Professor Simon Monoja is referring to should have been signed on the 5th of this month in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa by South Sudan President Salva Kiir and his political and military rival Riek Machar. But on and off disagreements between them over certain clauses of the agreement resulted in both reneging from signing it, partly agreeing with the Professor Simon Monoja, but in a more amplified perspective, is Lorna James, a civil society activist and head of South Sudan women's organization known as Voice of Change. The right thing is for them at least to, 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 to amend the constitution to allow them first to uh, finalize the peace process and uh, also uh, to address some of the outstanding issues that are currently going on between the opposition and the government in terms of the peace talks. The government should come with a clear plan on what they are going to achieve within the three years so that we don't go to the end of the third year and then we'll say, oops, you know, we need another extension. Adding his voice to the extension of tenure saga, Archbishop Daniel Dengbul of South Sudan Anglican Church had a cautious but appropriate message to South Sudan President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Riek Machar. I am still appealing to the government and I'm appealing to Dr. Riek Machar and his followers that please, we want you to see the needs. Be concerned about your people. Many, many South Sudanese are dying. And they are dying because they are struggling on the power. I am appealing to them. Please spare the life of South Sudanese. Archbishop Daniel Dengbul is of the opinion that a power struggle is under play in South Sudan. Our brothers who have been negotiating the government and the opposition, they've been negotiating on their interests of each party, but they were not negotiating on the interests of the people of the Republic of South Sudan. So as far they've been, as you know, the, the fighting going on in the country is just a matter of a power struggle. Because of the insecurity, I cannot go to certain areas. And also, as you know, our people have been uh, thinking in tribal terms. Even when I'm going to the Nuer areas, they don't see me as a, as a man of God. They see me there as a Dinka. Dinka, the tribe to which Archbishop Daniel Dengbul of the South Sudan Anglican Church belongs to, is the very tribe that President Salva Kiir comes from. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Chimanyula. Nigerians are preparing to go to the ballot on Saturday to elect a president amid security threats from Boko Haram militants. The frontrunners, President Goodluck Jonathan and former military dictator Muhammad Buhari, have promised to tackle the militants as well as corruption. This, Sarah Kimani reports from Lagos. At a newsstand in Tenubu Square in Nigeria's commercial capital, Lagos, readers mill around the day's papers, debating on the day's headlines. All other issues have taken a back banner. For them, the debate centers around the country's elections, scheduled for Saturday. With each passing minute, the tone gets higher, each reader, each voter, seeking to have his opinion heard. (laughs) 
That debate is temporarily drowned by sounds of campaign music in support of President Gundlach Jonathan, the incumbent and the ruling People's Democratic Party, PDP's candidate. It is a tight contest between Jonathan and his main rival Muhammadu Buhari of All Progressives Congress, APC, as evidenced by the readers. So I see no reason why people are talking about good luck, good luck, good luck. Who said that a good luck is not trying? Me, I don't know the adjective to, disqualify, to, to qualify that person. Good luck I've tried enough for this country. The election of March 28 is going to be a, a bloodless revolution. Somebody will think a more intelligent person to move the country forward. But we can see that nothing, nothing is working in this country. Nothing is this one and we need a change. I want to vote for my conscience on Saturday. I know Jonathan is trying, but the people around him, I'm fighting them. That's clearly. You understand? Jonathan's supporters say he has improved infrastructure in the country and has managed to diversify the economy. His opponents accuse him of failing to deal with Boko Haram militants, accused of killing at least 13,000 people since its insurgency began six years ago and abducting hundreds, including nearly 300 schoolgirls, in April last year. He has also been accused of being weak on tackling corruption. We don't want Jonathan again. We want to change another president. We don't want Jonathan again. Before our, our GDP is down, now we are the first in Africa, never in history in Nigeria. So, so many things, so many opportunities, creating so many things. Now the, 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 the Shopee, now it's working, creating so many jobs, empowering youth, empowering youth and several things like that. So they should allow him to continue. 68 million people are registered to vote. There are 14 candidates contesting in this year's presidential elections on Saturday. However, the real battle will be between the incumbent, President Goodluck Jonathan, and the APC's Muhammadu Buhari. Jonathan is campaigning on a platform of continuity, while Buhari says the time for change for Nigeria is now. Sarah Kibani, Lagos, Nigeria. It's 17.13 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Antonio Guterres, has wrapped up a two-day visit to Cameroon, where some 75,000 Nigerian refugees have crossed into the far north region of the Central African state. This includes some 25,000 people who escaped clashes between the regional military forces and insurgents in northeastern Nigeria in the month of February alone. Moki Kinzega reports from the Minawawa refugee camp. Refugees at the Minawawo refugee camp in northern Cameroon received the United Nations refugee chief Antonio Guterres with shouts that they are hungry, thirsty and sick. 27-year-old Isaac Luca, president of the refugee community in the camp, who says he fled Nigeria's Bono state in January this year after the terrorist group Boko Haram killed 15 people in his Goza village for refusing to be their fighters, says the influx of refugees has added pressure on facilities at the camp. Water is the most, the most important thing we need, very urgent, water, because water is life. People go from here to about uh, two or three kilometers to fetch water and they carry it on their head. You know, women, they are not strong enough to carry 15 liters of water. 
from there but they have to carry it because there is no water nurse adepuli marceline says food scarcity in the camp is also having a toll on children on a déjà recensé jusqu'à ce jour she says they are attending to 361 children with severe malnutrition and 255 other cases that are not severe, adding that most of the children with severe cases are those just arriving at the refugee camp. She says they are only authorized to give free treatment to children between 6 and 59 months of age. The United Nations Refugee Agency estimates some 74,000 Nigerians have fled to neighboring Cameroon, including 25,000 who escaped clashes between the regional military forces from Nigeria, Cameroon and Chad and the insurgents in northeastern Nigeria last February 2015. UN Refugee Chief Antonio Guterres says the influx led to an increase of refugees in Minawau from barely 17,000 to over 33,000. He says in February, the agency asked for 71 million U.S. dollars to assist displaced people in Nigeria and neighboring countries, but received only 6.8 million U.S. dollars in donations. We have made a number of internal reforms that have allowed us to have some savings, and we have been around the world reducing our costs as much as possible to have some savings able to feed the needs before donor support comes. But I hope donor support will come because it will be unsustainable to go on like this with very little funding. Antonio Guterres says they now need over $22 million to take care of Nigerians at Minawau and calls on the international community to contribute and save lives. I understand that uh, the international community is now very focused on Syria and on Iraq. But let's be clear, what's happening in Nigeria is very similar to what's happening in Syria. It's the same kind of problem and it requires the same kind of commitment, the same kind of support from the international community. And we hope that the international community will be able to show it. Every country in the world needs to understand that Cameroon is not only protecting itself, Cameroon is protecting all of us. Antonio Guterres also warns that a cholera epidemic looms in the area. In 2012, 2013 and 2014, cholera swept through northern Cameroon, which has a history of drinkable water scarcity, claiming thousands of lives. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzika in Minawau, northern Cameroon. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka 
in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel African in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. The government of Zambia says it will not tolerate Rwandans who continue to live in the country illegally. Following the invoking of secession clause, a close to 3,000 Rwandans living in Zambia lost their refugee status. Meanwhile, the Rwandan government has expressed readiness to receive all refugees and to issue documents to those who wish to continue living and working in Zambia as Rwandan nationals, but not as refugees. Sylvanas Karamera reports from Kigali. On 30th June 2013, Zambia and UNHCR declared the end of refugee status for all Rwandans who left their country of origin before 31st December 1998. The removal of the session clause meant that no Rwandan is allowed to live in a host country as a refugee except for legitimate reasons and legal documents after assessment and approval by the UNHCR. Despite invoking over the secession clause, a good number of Rwandans are still living in Zambia without legal documents from Rwanda legalizing them to stay there. Zambia's Deputy Minister of Home Affairs, Lieutenant Colonel Panji Kaunda, said his government will not tolerate any Rwandans without a passport issued by their country of origin. Our laws are very clear. You can't stay in the country if you've got no papers. So that's why your government has offered these people a passport. If they've got a passport, a passport, then they can apply to the Zambian government for other permits which allow them to stand there. But without any papers, they become illegal immigrants. And our, our law is extremely, extremely clear on that one. So the choice is theirs. They either move to another country where they can be kept as refugees, or they get their passports to other governments, then they apply to us for official permit for them to say as, as self-employed or as residents, whatever they want. But first and foremost, the first step, you must have an identity of some sort from your country of, of origin. Figures provided by the Minister in Charge of Refugee Affairs in Rwanda shows that Zambia is home to over 3,000 Rwandans. The biggest percentage, however, entered Zambia as refugees. This was before, during, and shortly after the genocide committed in Rwanda 21 years ago. Minister Panji Kaunda says it is high time for Rwandans living in Zambia to go back home since Rwanda is safe. We have done the best that we can do for them. Uh, we have looked after them for, for all these years, but it's time now that they should come home. But coming home is the way between ourselves, Zambian government, and the government of Rwanda, and of course with your instead of support. The Minister of Disaster Management and Refugee Affairs in Rwanda, Serafini Mukanabana, reiterated the country's commitment to receive its citizens willing to repatriate, saying that the doors are open or to issue official Rwandan identification documents to those who may choose to be locally integrated in their respective countries of asylum, including Zambia. It is true. Zambia is among countries hosting bigger numbers of Rwandans. They are not living there on a refugee status because they lost their refugee status. Some have rigid attitudes. They want to forcefully live in Zambia. They say they don't want Rwandan passports and they don't want to return home. If they decide to repatriate, we are more than ready to facilitate. But they have to want to stay 
either for working purposes, doing businesses, studying, they should officially apply for documents. The solution to this matter seems to be far because even UNHCR, which stands in the midst of the two governments, confessed nothing but disappointment. Lola Locastro is UNHCR representative in Zambia. There are persons of concern for us, but at this point in time, um, it goes beyond the UNHCR capacity and mandate to, to find a real solution. So we really count on the two governments uh, to sit together and try to decide on the way forward. Since 1994, close to 3,500,000 Rwandans have returned home, with only 250 coming from Zambia. Silvanus Kremera, reporting for Channel Africa from Kigali. The African Advanced Level Telecommunications Institute, that is FRLTI, has governing council meeting is underway in the Zambian town of Livingston, Kenyan-based. African Advanced Level Telecommunications Institute is an African Union initiative offering high-level training to African telecommunications students. The four-day meeting will be discussing issues relating to human resource development in Africa. Hilda Akekelwa has this report for us. Opening the meeting, Zambia's Communications Deputy Minister Richwell Siamunene said Afrarity has come at the time when Africa needs it most because information and technology are at the center of every undertaking in today's world. He said while Africa is still battling with infrastructure development, developed countries are now focusing on human capital development and research. He therefore implored African Union member states to support the Institute for it to continue training personnel that will help develop the continent. He said the Zambian government views human capital development as a cog in the wheel of transformation and places it at the highest of priorities of all policy and operational interventions. In this vein, Mr. Siamunene implored Afraut to steer the continent towards technological advancement that will put it on par with the developed countries. Afraut therefore must adapt and transform to meet the dynamism of what is taking place in developed countries and the ICT sector. I am confident that through Afrat, Africa will be the leader in technology advancement. African countries have lost huge sums of money due to technology burnout. You are all aware that some of the technology, by the time it reaches here, the other side it is uh, it's absolute. So obviously this time around with your <coughs> intervention, this will not be the case. The time is now ripe for Africans to take leadership role in technology advancement and move away from being a dumping ground for aging technologies. That is why your government have demonstrated unquestionable commitment towards Afrat. I have no doubt in my mind that with your determination and commitment of Afrat, the, the role in technology leadership is not far-fetched. In his remarks, Afraut director Eustace Mabureke said the institute aims to set itself as a center of excellency whose rub-on effect would enable member states solve some of its problems. He said the institute is ready to play its role of training personnel required to turn the continent's technological development around. He said the institute is ready to play its role of training personnel required for the continent's technological development. 
He however appealed to member states to complement its efforts by taking policy directions on time. No development will ever take place without the involvement of its human capital. In the IT space, it is quite vibrant and very dynamic. The changes are not of the order of years. We are now talking of weekly, daily changes that are taking place. I needed to share with you also that in this particular space, we notice certain trends that are taking place. The lifetime of policy in many of our countries is nine years. And the lifetime of regulation is on average four years. And yet technology is now changing at about six months. Now, if policy is going to guide regulation, and the regulation is going to drive the business activities that take place to allow this technology to capacitate our people. Afrauti was established 30 years ago with the aim of training telecommunications personnel for the continent. The council comprising eight countries of Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, Mozambique, Swaziland, Malawi, Zimbabwe and Zambia meets twice a year. At the end of this session, Malawi will hand over the chair to Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And at 17.30, here's Amanda Machaka with the news headlines. Thank you, Spumelele. Good evening. Ugandan police say they have increased security in the capital after the United States warned of terrorist threats to its citizens. The U.S. Embassy warned yesterday that uh, terrorists could target places where U.S. and Western citizens congregate in Kampala. As Nigerians go to the polls on Saturday, their concerns range from insecurity, corruption, high inflation and unemployment. And the human rights group Amnesty International has found that both Palestinians and Israelis committed war crimes during last year's Gaza conflict. This echoes an earlier finding by UN Special Investigator Richard Goldstone. Those were news headlines. 
Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. You still listen to Africa Digest, this channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumele Lezondi. Now, four more African countries are set to benefit from a unique Africa-led fund designed to improve food security across the continent. Malawi, Cameroon, Benin and Niger have signed agreements with the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, that is FAO, to receive $4 million each from the Africa Solidarity Trust Fund. The agreement was signed by the NAPAD Chief Executive Officer Dr. Ibrahim Mayaki and FAO Director General Tijani Buka at the 11th Comprehensive Africa Agriculture Development Program, CAADP, partnership platform in Johannesburg, South Africa. The ASTF was officially launched in 2013 and has already invested millions of dollars in nutrition and food security projects across 24 countries. Ntlandla Matlango has the report. As the world's agriculture community continues to find innovative ways to close the nutritional gap, a movement in the heart of Africa is investing in the resilience of rural communities in a number of African countries. These communities are becoming more nutritionally secure, increasing youth employment and incorporating best practices for more bountiful harvests. The four million US dollar project is one of the initiatives funded by the Africa Solidarity Trust Fund worth a total of sixteen million US dollars and set to benefit a number of countries across the continent, encompassing youth employment and malnutrition, transboundary animal and plant diseases, food safety and urban food security. More from Tijani Buka, Assistant Director General at the Food and Agriculture Organization. This could be in production processing, marketing, branding, e-agriculture, which could mean uh, internet-based information systems for markets, internet-based information system for research, internet-based information system for agricultural management within Africa. So these are the areas that we are looking at. And uh, of course it could be other areas that could be key, like the service provision within agriculture and these service provisions could be uh, agro input dealership this will include fertilizers seeds seedlings livestock day old chicks fingerlings juveniles forest products apiculture honey production it could be so many of these areas that we are looking at he says the contributions will be used to bolster a wide range of projects to improve food security, nutrition, agriculture and rural development. These include policies and programs to increase opportunities for youth employment, improve natural resources management and the quality of food production amongst others. In this particular one we are looking at about 1,500 youth but we expect them to have gainful employment and they will also employ other youth. I remember one youth uh, in one of the countries who has employed 30 more youth. Some are five, some are six, depending on how many, how successful they are. And this has a multiplicative effect. And we are also looking at how we can look at regional forests. In terms of the successes, I must say that it has been extremely successful. We are not actually implementing FAO or NEPAT programs. We are implementing country priority 
in terms of youth development. Tijani Puka, FAO Assistant Director General, explains how the funds will be distributed. These funds, for example, for now, the 4 million in different installments will leave the accounts of Africa Solidarity Trust Fund of FAO and it will be instrumentally transferred to NEPAD. NEPAD will now also look at who are the partners, including the country partners, to implement this activity. These funds will be for, for example, for Malawi. It will be there. Uh, the groups and all this will be provided by the country, and then the implementation will be jointly done between FAO and Malawi. Dr. Alan Chiembegeza, Minister of Agriculture, Irrigation and Water Development in Malawi, has welcomed the agreement. He says it will help provide funds and assist the youth of Malawi. We have so many youth in, in Malawi that uh, don't have much to do. But now we have been able to organize them into groups. Now they're involved in production of different crop varieties. In some cases, they're involved in producing seed for sale, just like as indicated. And we're also going to venture into value addition of the products that uh, they're going to be producing. So this money that has been put forward definitely is going to go a long way in supporting those youth that we have in the country. And just like it has already been demonstrated, there are going to be so many more youth that are going to be employed by these groups so that at least their livelihood is going to improve. The Africa Solidarity Trust Fund was launched in 2013 as a unique Africa-led initiative to improve agriculture and food security across the continent. Since its inception, the fund has already provided financing for projects in a number of countries including Mali, Ethiopia, South Sudan and the Central African Republic amongst others. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Glantra Matlangu in Johannesburg. 1737 Central African Time. The Vice-Chancellor of the University of Oxford in England, Andrew Hamilton, says demonstrations by students of South Africa's University of Cape Town, that is UCT, are appropriate. He has, however, cautioned that the importance of education shouldn't be forgotten. UCT students have embarked on a protest to have the statue of Cecil John Rhodes removed from the campus. As they say, it is traumatizing. Many students say his legacy is steeped in the oppression of black people. People in South Africa. For more on this, Channel Africa's Tutongobeni spoke to Professor Hamilton. We are here in South Africa for a number of reasons, but mostly to celebrate the links between Oxford University and South Africa. Those links include students. We are here very much to recruit, to encourage South African students to think about Oxford as a place where they might carry out future study. We're meeting former students, alumni. We've had events in a number of places around the country in meeting alumni. We are here to also celebrate birthday and anniversary, which is a 100-year anniversary of the presence in South Africa of Oxford University Press, an important part of the university, our publishing arm, and one that contributes to educational materials and academic materials here in South Africa. And then finally, and possibly most importantly, we are here to look at, to assess, to celebrate the research collaborations that exist between Oxford and academics, universities, research institutions in South Africa. And there are many of those covering very wide ranges of different areas.
How important are such collaborations with institutions like yours, especially with the African continent having a young population? Yeah, very important indeed. And so, let me, for example, yesterday were in the Eastern Cape. We were in a small village just outside King Williamstown in the Eastern Cape, and we were visiting a program that is being carried out by a research program by South African academics and Oxford academics working together. And the program was assessing, but also seeking to improve the kind of community-based programs that target the reduction of child abuse in families in the Eastern Cape. And it was a good example, your comment about a very young population in Africa. And it's a good example of the way in which research in leading universities, Oxford and South African universities, can help benefit the young population, particularly in the disadvantaged areas of, in this case, South Africa, but obviously by developing and understanding these community programs, we can hopefully in due course roll them out to other parts of Africa. How important would you say is the role of young educated scholars in a developing country like South Africa? Oh, I believe passionately that education is critical. It's the bedrock of of society and as societies advance, as they develop, as their economies strengthen and evolve, education is absolutely essential. We are living in a globalized world. We are living in a world that is driven by knowledge and the economies of the advanced countries of the world are so much driven by knowledge and high technology and computer-driven activities. And so for me, it is very important that we remember that we reinforce the critical role that education plays in South Africa, has done, as South Africa has evolved and developed over the past decades. But I think it absolutely needs to be said again and again and again that education will be critical for the future of South Africa in an educated citizenry, but most importantly in an educated workforce who can bring their knowledge, their skills to develop and improve a strong economy for South Africa. Students at the University of Cape Town have been protesting against the continued presence of the Cecil John Rhodes statue on campus. What is your view regarding this protest? I was in Cape Town earlier in the week and indeed visited the University of Cape Town. So that issue was very much in everyone's minds. And let me say two things. The first is that statues, by their definition, are symbolic. And they have been since ancient Rome. And it is entirely appropriate, in my opinion, that the students and the faculty at UCT, and indeed South Africa, is debating the role of this particular symbol in 21st century South Africa. And I think that this is a debate that should be held, and it is being held robustly and vigorously. And that's what universities are for. They're for robust, vigorous discussion debate. It's a decision that is for the students and the faculty of UCT, not for me. The second thing I would say is that the contributions that have been made to education by the Rhodes Trust that provides Rhodes Scholarships, by the Mandela Rhodes Foundation, 
that are, provide scholarships to students from all over Africa to come and study in South Africa. Those contributions to education have been very important. And looking forward, it is very critical that all of us in the UK, in South Africa, and in the world continue to focus on providing opportunities for education for young people who will then be so critical to determining the future of the country, the future of South Africa. And so for me, it's an important debate. It is being held with, with strength and vigor in Cape Town. But also it's important that we remind ourselves that education is at the heart of the future health and vitality of South Africa. Professor Andrew Hamilton is Vice-Chancellor of the University of Oxford in England. He was on the line there with Tutongobin. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Seventeen forty-five Central African Time. Here's Rosane Matebula with your economic news. Thanks, Pumelele, and good evening. The South African Reserve Bank has announced that the repo rate will remain steady at 5.75%, meaning that interest rates have been left unchanged at 9.25%. Governor Lesija Khanyaho says the rent is expected to remain under pressure from international and local events, including the large current account deficit. Khanyaho says they have assessed the risk to inflation and found it to be on the upside given the looming electricity and fuel price hikes. Once lower international oil prices are expected to continue to impact favorably on the import bill, as oil imports account for just under 20% of merchandise uh, imports, the wide trade deficit in January, should it persist, suggests that the adjustments may remain slow. A Somali businessman is betting on a biometric fingerprint system to keep alive a vital money transfer firms which face closure. This after Western banks cut ties due to fears remittance cash may be channeled to militant groups. Somalian leaders say the closure of money transfer companies will be disastrous for a nation where millions depend on remittances from family members abroad to buy food, pay for schools and set up businesses. Mohamed Gulaid reports. Banks in the United States, Britain and elsewhere are increasingly wary of facilitating transfers to Somalia because of tighter regulations aimed at stopping cash-reaching insurgent groups such as Islamic al-Shabaab. 
prominent entrepreneur Liban Eagle plans to launch a technology in May to help remittance farms transfer and identify who picks up the cash. The application will use fingerprints, photos and other identification. Egal is the chairperson of First Somali Bank, FSB, which was set up in 2012. It has yet to secure a full commercial banking lenses from Somalia's central bank. Meanwhile, the Bank of Botswana have the primary reserve requirements for commercial banks today. The move is aimed at shoring up liquidity in an industry pressed by a shortage of money to lend. Governor Laina Mohosho says the primary reserve ratio, PRR, would from April this year fall to 5% from 10%. This will unlock $234 million and increase cash available for lending by commercial banks. And Dangote Cement's pre-tax profit fell to 3.2% to $928 million last year. This was due to a gas shortage to fire its plant and low demand after prolonged wet weather. Africa's biggest cement company says its sales volumes in its main Nigerian market fell 3.2%. It expected market growth in Nigeria to be muted this year owing to election and currency worries worsened by the fall in government revenues triggered by the plunge in world oil prices. The firm is majority owned by Africa's richest man, Aliko Dangote. Italian energy company Saipem is close to signing a joint venture with big local partner in Nigeria just after clinching a similar deal in China with PetroChina. This is the oil contractor seeks to access new markets. Saipem is 43% owned by Italian oil company Eni. Christine Sipesu reports. The company has seen $11 billion wiped off its market value over the past two years after two profit warnings, a corruption investigation in Algeria, and a worsening outlook. Tumbling oil prices and rising costs have prompted Saipem, which has been fined in a case relating to alleged corruption in Nigeria, already has a presence in the country, including the subsea development of the Egina field with France Total. The Nigeria deal follows hard on the heels of a landmark joint venture signed with the PetroChina Group last week. The deal will create a new company well placed to build a strong position in the growing Chinese oil service sector. Financial indicators, the dollar at 11.81 South African rands at 9.67 Botswana Pula and 7.62 Zambian Kwacha, also at 0.67 to the British pound and 0.91 against the euro. Commodities, gold $1,199, platinum $1,104.5 a fine ounce, Brent crude oil at $58.03 per barrel. That's your economics news. And at 17.50 Central African Time, here's Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we're kicking off with football news. Following Bafana Bafana's comfortable 3-1 win over the neighboring Swaziland side on Wednesday night, head coach Ifram Sheikh Mashaba is under no illusions that the next international friendly match against Nigeria in Elspreet on Sunday will be a tougher game than last night's one. Goals from Tulani Tlachwayo, debutant Tabo Mnyamani and Mandla Masango made all the difference for Bafana. 
after playing two draws in the AFCON qualifiers last year and played a part in the Super Eagles failing to defend their title in Equatorial Guinea two months ago. Mashaba knows that they are coming here for a good result. No, no, no. Those are two different games. And uh, you cannot uh, take what has happened here and take it to the game in, in, uh, in Pumalanga. It's going to be a tough game there as well. Like I indicated, we will win, but it's going to be tough here. The Nigerian game as well. And uh, as you know, that they still have a score to set with us, according to them. They're, they're going to come spitting fire. But we're ready for them. We're ready for them. Mnyamani of University of Pretoria, who only two years ago was playing for the Northwest University Soccer Institute and also in the ABC Mutsipe League, joined the likes of Jabu Matlangu and Dumisangobe, who had also scored on debut. Mashaba says the 22-year-old from Sibukeng in the Val has got a bright future ahead of him. They all played very well in their different positions. Nyamani uh, as well, he's got a skill. What I like about him is um, very, very composed on the ball, but he still has to learn things like a sense of agency and, and of course, aggression. He never had aggression, as well as winning a ball up in the air. He, he was struggling, but all in all, he's a good player. And the memorial service of the late Steve Kalamazoo Mugoni will be held on the 11th of April at the FNB Stadium in Johannesburg. This was revealed by the Minister of Sports and Recreation, Fide Mbalula, this afternoon at the headquarters of South African Football Association. Mbalula elaborates more on the memorial service proceedings. The Minister of Sports and Recreation South Africa, together with SAFA, will have a national memorial service on the 11th of April 2015 to be held in our backyard here at the FNP Stadium. This memorial service presents an opportunity to the family, relatives, friends, football-loving people to celebrate the life and times of this larger-than-life human colossus. The South African senior men and women football teams the Premier Soccer League teams, the National First Division teams and Vodacom League will wear black armbands and observe a moment of silence before the commencement of their forthcoming games for a period of two weeks of mourning. On to cricket news. Australia has ended 2011 champion India's unbeaten run at the World Cup with a 95-run victory that ensured the tournament co-hosts will meet in the final. Steve Smith scored 105 and shared a 182-run partnership with Aaron Finch to help Australia post 328 for 7. Australia captain Michael Clark says he's excited. Obviously really excited. I think the boys have played some outstanding cricket. Uh, Smitty was exceptional once again. Jeezy's he's hitting the ball so sweetly. And I was really proud of the execution under pressure there from our bowlers. Um, you know, credit needs to go to all the players. I think everybody's chipped in today. Once again, a lot of guys sacrificing themselves for the team. Um, and obviously a, a huge congratulations and, and thanks to MS Dhoni and the Indian team for, like you said, it's been a, a long summer. I think they've competed really well and shown their talent throughout this tournament. Uh, I heard you ask me if it was going to be his last World Cup and I'm pretty sure it's not going to be. He's got a lot of cricket left in his body yet. Finally, with tennis news, Kenya will send four players to the Africa Junior Under-18 Tennis Championships that will take place in Egypt next month. Stefan Mbaya, Oliver Kigoto, Kevin Cheriot and Shil Kotecha have been picked to represent the country in a two-week tournament. That's your sport news this hour.
is Africa Digest. Let's recap our top stories at 1755. The decision to extend the term of South Sudan's parliament by three years is received cautiously. Security fears still persist ahead of Nigeria's election on Saturday. In economics, the South African Reserve Bank leaves a repo rate unchanged at 5.75%. And in sports, Bafana Bafana brace themselves for a clash against Nigeria. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Luanda Mawome, technical producer Charles Moyo, and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. For comments on the show, you can send us emails on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, and we're on SMS on plus 2782-332-5905, plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour is Batumi by Jonas Kwangwa.
Macho anadidi 